I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Women and conflict. It's time to take a closer look. What's actually going on in civil society in times of uprising and resistance? And what role are women especially playing? They may not make the news headlines, but that doesn't mean they're not making the news. In fact, they may be leading. They're probably leading in all sorts of ways the cameras rarely see. What forms do their leadership take and to what effect? Questions like these are at the heart of Women, War and Peace 2, a four-part film series that is streaming and playing on PBS stations. It started this Women's History Month. An all-female cast of directors presented four stories about women who risked their lives for justice and peace and changed history. We're pleased to have two of them here. Julia Basha, a Peabody and Guggenheim award-winning filmmaker and director of Nyla and the Uprising, of which more later, and Jeannie Redeker, an Academy Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning filmmaker who directed The Trials of Spring and is also an executive producer of the series. Welcome both. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for so having us. So it does have that two at the end, Women <laughs> at War and Peace 2. Um, remind people, this is part of a series, there was a Women, War and Peace one. There was indeed. What's the theme? It was, uh, well, women in conflict and untold stories. Um, and I think that we kind of, Abby, Disney, and I did a film called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. And I think that was the last time you were here on the show. It is indeed. And it was the story of how women in Liberia, Muslim and Christian women banded together to end a 14-year civil war. And we realized that that was just one of many, many, many stories. So we ended up doing a whole series um, and I remember at the time that we were doing it, Pam Hogan um, was also one of the executive producers on it. She went to Paris and she went to the War Museum in Paris, which is a museum that is an entire block long and three stories high. There was not one image of, the, of a woman in the entire museum. And so it's just a story. We just feel like there's so many untold stories. So after we did the first series, we've now decided to come back with another one. So are you halfway down the block, you think? <laughs> <laughs> we have a long way to go. Now, of course, women, war and peace could mean kind of anything. I mean, your approach could be women, and, women and who are victims, women who are peacemakers. Um, how do you sort of play out the theme or unpack the theme a little bit more than that? I think, I think that we put women at the center of stories. Yeah. And so that, that it's, there, there, I think too many stories are about women as victims. And that's like a very traditional way of looking at women. But what we found is that women in conflict tend to deal with things like who's eating what, how, how, what, what, what are people doing for water, what are people doing for schools, what in the whole kind of infrastructure is what women are left to handle and deal with. And so that they often have the best ideas about how to bring peace. So we just want to include them in the story. Let's play the trailer for the series, and then we'll come to your film specifically, which I found so critically important. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you about it. But this is the trailer for the series, Women, War, and Peace 2. Check it out. survived Mubarak's rule, Skaf's rule, Morsi's government, and now back to a government backed by the army. And the same activists are being arrested and tried. It's not hard to remember what I wanted during the revolution, because what I wanted then is what I want now, freedom. 
the demands that were chanted sums it all up, threat, freedom and social justice, including fighting for women's rights specifically. The British and Irish governments have announced a firm date for the start of all party negotiations on the Northern Ireland peace process. We've got to do all of the things that we've been doing in our own lives as activists, but now we have to do them on the general political platform. I'd never been in a political party before in my life. Uh, it wasn't politics, it was peace that I wanted. We had to prove that it wasn't about sitting around a table and just talking about women's issues. It was about basic human rights issues for the whole of Northern Ireland. Two of the films, the two of you were directly responsible also in the directing of. Let's talk about Nela and the uprising first. Yeah, so I've been working for the past 15 years with a nonprofit organization called Just Vision, and we've been researching and documenting the work of Palestinians and Israelis who use nonviolent resistance to end the occupation and build a future of dignity and equality for both communities in the region. Uh, the films that we have made up until Nile and the Uprising were all about contemporary stories of individuals who were taking tactics from civil disobedience strategies that have been used all over the world to try to create a better reality on the ground. And those activists who have been doing all of these actions over the past 10 years took their inspiration from what was done in the First Intifada in the late 1980s. So we had been hearing over and over again that they wanted to see the story of the First Intifada told for the first time on a feature documentary and see their, their stories and the, the movement that they built reflected um, in emotion pictures. So to take the American audience back, going back to the 19, late 1980s, the image that most Americans would have would be of young Palestinian men throwing rocks at soldiers. And they might know that the uprising was sparked by the killing of, of several Palestinians at the hand of Israelis. In 88, 89? December 1987 oh, was when uh, the uprising started in a refugee camp in Gaza, and it quickly spread to the East Jerusalem and the West Bank. As you said, most people will remember sort of this simple image of a Palestinian boy throwing a stone at a heavily armored Israeli tank. Um, in reality, though, the First Intifada was this very well-organized and disciplined movement that involved all generations, that involved all of the Palestinian political factions, and involved women, actively so. When we started making the film, we were really wanting to tell the story about the nonviolent organizing that took place and the level of uh, orchestration that that took at the civil society level to, to maintain it for four years. What we didn't know uh, and we found out during the research was that the reason why that had been such a disciplined and organized movement was because Palestinian women had been at the helm for much of it. You tell the story of how many of the male men in leadership were actually deported, leaving women in charge, and in charge not just of strategy for the resistance, but of keeping people fed, of keeping people's lights on in a time which was also one of incredible economic uh, conflict. Describe that part of the picture. Yeah, during the early months of the uprising, as the community wrote, you know, sort of started really getting organized and the Israeli military 
understood that this wasn't something that was going to pass in a few days, that this was different. This was an insurrection, uh, was the word they were describing at the time. They knew they had to find a way to crush it really quickly. And they used sort of three main tactics. They did mass arrests of uh, all young Palestinian men between the age of 14 and 24 that they found on the streets. And they had to set up these massive... uh, prison, makeshift prisons on the deserts uh, in the south of Israel and the Negev in order to house all of these men because they couldn't fit on the regular prisons. They also deported the sort of top leadership. uh, And the way that these men were deported was very crude. They were put inside helicopters. The helicopters would fly out of Israel, would land in no man's land between Israel and Lebanon, and they would just be left there. And then the helicopter would fly away. And many of the men were killed as well. There was a lot of um, ammunition, live ammunition used against the protesters on the early months. And what happened was that a vacuum was left in their leadership, which was the intention of the Israeli army. What they didn't know was that there was a whole group of women who had been trained over now 10 years of community organizing who were ready to take on the leadership and who were actually very prepared and had a vision for what they wanted to take the uprising. And how common is this to the story that you've been telling across the series in the sense that it is often into that vacuum that women's leadership emerges, even though women may have actually been filling that space for a long time? Right. I think that it's our recognition of of that, not the fact that women haven't been doing that. It's actually that the media doesn't tend to look at those stories. And particularly around conflict, stories get to be told in terms of body counts and military battles. But actually, there's a whole lot of other things that happen during war. People continue to exist. Um, And so I think that it's just that we don't look at those stories. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guests are Jeannie Redeker, executive producer of Women, War and Peace 2, a series now running on public television. She's also executive producer and director of The Trials of Spring, a searing documentary about the Egyptian liberation struggle. Also with us, Julia Bacha. She's creative director for Just Vision Media and director of the documentary Naila and the Uprising. You can watch their trailers and the series trailer at www.lauraflanders.org. That's also where you can subscribe to our podcast to receive studio extras that you won't hear here. The latest of those is Citizen Inc., featuring Atossa Araxa Abrahamian, senior editor at The Nation, on the buying and selling of citizenship in a conversation with historian John Torpy on the history of the modern passport. Next, what happens to all the extraordinary women's leadership that kicks into action in wartime and was almost invisible in corporate coverage of Palestine, for example? To take us there, here's a taste of composer Blake Lay's film score for Jeannie Redeker's The Trials of Spring. And a tidbit on Blake, his credits include films by Spike Lee, Julie Taymor, and HBO's acclaimed series, The Wire.
sometimes when we, take, think, when we talk about keeping society together being important, we think of it as separate from the conflict or the work of peace and justice making. I think what I got from the series and what I particularly get from your film, Julia, is that it is the peace and justice making. And in this case, it was actually the survival mechanisms that the women put in place that almost won the conflict. That's right. Uh, The Palestinian women at the time, they had a vision for how to start putting together the structures that could lead to an independent Palestinian state. And those structures included things like healthcare for the community. So instead of relying on the hospitals that were controlled by the Israeli military, they actually set up mobile clinics to take care of people independently and not in a way that would put in danger the well-being of injured people coming into hospitals. It means making sure that people are fed. And so in order to actually build independence from Israeli products, uh, which the Palestinian uh, communities were a captive market for the goods coming from Israel, they actually established a boycott of Israeli goods and started setting up victory gardens, which were gardens in people's backyards. where they cooperatives. And cooperatives, where they would grow tomatoes and eggplants and start distributing it. All of, all of that, by the way, was illegal. And you could be put in prison for 10 years for doing any of these activities. Similarly, education, another core aspect of establishing a state and your independence. They wanted to be um, have their own educational systems. Israel had shut down the Israeli, uh, the, sorry, the Palestinian schools. And so they started teaching Palestinian kids inside their homes. Uh, if you were found with more than three kids inside your living room and books were present, you could be in prison for 10 years because of that act. So they were taking enormous risks while really creating and reimagining what it means to be part of a society mm-hmm. and, and building equality for women inside of that society. Let's talk about Trials of Spring. Not unrelated. I mean, one of the connecting points there was, again, how do we provide a service that people need that also liberates people? Uh, in this case people in protest trying to defend themselves against assault and rape. Do you want to just introduce Trials of Spring a little bit and how you found your central character? Sure. Um, Trials of Spring is basically the story of Hen Nafeo, who is a young woman from a village in Egypt, who very conservative family. She kind of sneaks out of the house and begins to take place, take part in the demonstrations that were, we all know as Tahrir Square during the Arab uprising. And her family had no idea that she was um, participating until she got arrested and beaten and tortured. Um, And then they came to get her and then proceeded to punish her for taking part in all that. Um, So, and the charges that were against her then continue on through the courts for three years. And her story is really a microcosm of what happened to Egypt. Because during the early days, it was just this incredible euphoria that um, people talked about like being in Tahrir Square and feeling like that they were one organism, that there was incredible unity. And that really begins to split on International Women's Day, which unfortunately women went down to Tahrir Square to demonstrate for women's rights, which was only a month after Mubarak fell. And immediately they got pushback. And the pushback came not only from um, Islamists, but came from some of their fellow demonstrators, and it was get out, get out, get out, get out. And it was at that moment that the army decides that they're going to break up all the protesters. And so the hand story very much parallels what, ha- mm. what happens in Egypt. Let's check out the clip. 
Now that Mubarak stepped down, what's your first wish? And I was like, end sexual harassment. Every Egyptian woman can be assaulted at any time. And on what prevails is impunity. Mubarak's rule, Skaf's rule, Morsi's government, and now back to an interim government backed by the army. And the same activists are being tried and arrested. It's not hard to remember what I wanted during the revolution, because what I wanted then is what I want now, freedom. Who doesn't want freedom? What happened to Hent? Hent eventually was tried in absentia for the demonstration that she took part in and sentenced to life in prison. Because she was tried in absentia, um, she was able to leave the country before she was um, brought in. And she's now living in the United States. Um, and so she is, and still working very much on behalf of other people in Egypt. And the number of people that have gone into prison since Sisi took power is now 60,000 people, are, uh, human rights defenders are in jail. So the situation in Egypt has gotten much, much mm. worse. And Naila? Naila lives in Ramallah with uh, her husband, Jamal Zakut, and uh, her son, Majd, is in Canada. Uh, so Majd uh, is a, a baby when the first intifada is taking place, and he ends up actually having to go into prison with her when Naila is arrested because he's an infant and he's still breastfeeding and felt very ill when she is captured. and. Uh, and held for six months in prison. And he is now a lawyer uh, in Canada. And Naila is still very active on women's issues um, as well as national liberation issues. And how does she and her cohort that you depict in the film make sense of what happened after the first intifada, after the Madrid talks, the Oslo agreement, and the civil society organizations that they had created more or less being written out of the picture? Yeah, the first intifada after about three years, created a political space internationally and in the United States that we have not seen, seen since then. So what happened was that by the time that um, the protests had kind of achieved its full potential and there was a lot of organizing, a lot of pressure against uh, the attacks that the Israeli army were committing against protesters, um, George Bush Sr., who was the president at the time, did something that no president in the United States has done since and no president had done up until him, which is that he threatened to withhold loan guarantees from Israel. Loan guarantees are one of the ways uh, that the United States has for decades now provided financial assistant, assistance to Israel. So he threatens to withhold that financial assistance unless Israel stops building settlements in the West Bank. Settlements are um, the illegal transfer of a civilian population into occupied territories, a violation of international law. And for decades, the United States has been financially supporting that effort. George Bush was the first one to say, if you want our contributions to your country, you need to stop violation, violating international law. And that created um, momentum for the first peace agreement to take place. So this was the first time that Palestinians were invited to negotiate directly with Israel, uh, as opposed to in prior negotiations like the Camp David Accords, where Palestinians were represented by Jordanians or by Egyptians mm -hmm. because they weren't considered a nationality. They were just Arabs that could be 
it's folded into a, a Jordanian nation or an Egyptian nation. But Nyla wasn't invited to the table. Nyla wasn't invited, but her colleagues were. So the first negotiation in Madrid, uh, which marked the beginning of that process, actually included many Palestinian women, including Zahira Kamal. Uh, and those women kind of created a blueprint for what could be a real future of independence and freedom for the Palestinian People were very population. excited. But very then... Excited. Then <laughs> that negotiation process was undercut by a secret negotiation uh, between Israel and the PLO, which was at the time based in Tunisia, and had become concerned that they were losing their political power over the Palestinian cause because so many of the Palestinian leaders from the West Bank and Gaza were now representing the Palestinian cause directly on the international stage. So in flies Bill Clinton to the not rescue. Um, people will have to see the film to get the full story I urge them to watch. I urge you to watch it on public television or stream at the website. Conclusions from this. Do you have any about sort of biologically determined roles for women or <laughs> otherwise? Are you trying to make a point? Women better, men not so good? No, I'm not trying to make that point at all. I, I think that we, but women being absent is, is bad for all of us and that we have, women have something different to bring to the table. They have different points of view. It's not biologically better. And it's kind of like, I kind of even don't like getting into that discussion because it's not really, we, it's a proven fact that when women are part of a negotiating table, that the peace will last longer. It's also that the signs of democracy are the greater representation that women have, which is kind of obvious since we're 50% of the population, the greater democracy will be. And so th those are just... It's, they're just the way that it is. And so we wanted to tell those stories. Julia? Um, I think that it's really critical for the future generations of young women that they get to see the stories of the women who actually have led movements historically around the world represented on the screen. Because we are now seeing a resurgence of women's activism around the world and including the United States. And we need to learn lessons from what worked, what didn't. The fact that a Palestinian movement was undercut and now we're left with the ongoing injustices in the region is something that we need to learn from. Why did that happen? Let's not Ha let that happen again. Let's build political power while we are doing our grassroots movements so that we can actually create long-term, sustainable, democratic countries. I want to thank you both for coming in. It's great talking to you. And I can't wait to see the rest of the series. Gas prices are rising and the options for policymakers are few and getting fewer, but there are some good ones. Let's be clear, the U.S. barely uses Russian oil, most of which goes to Europe and Asia. Still, it's true that without buying from Russia, the world's available supply of oil and gas is smaller, and reduced supplies tend to result in higher prices. But do they have to? The simple answer is no. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, big oil was posting record profits. According to the U.S. government watchdog group Accountable U.S., Chevron, Shell, Exxon, and BP made over $75 billion in 2021, a record sum. The oil companies are awash in wealth. They could at any point choose to lower prices for a beleaguered public in wartime. Instead, 
their executives are choosing to puff up dividends and CEO salaries and buy back their own shares, stock buybacks being win-wins for shareholders. Now, Republicans and their big oil buddies are threatening to spread anti-Biden lies all the way to the midterms by blaming price spikes on White House bungling and its refusal to open the last protected bits of public lands to drilling. Bad options for Biden, numbers one, two, and three, are drill the lands, give in to the big oil thugs, and lose the midterms. Bad option number four would be to go groveling to Saudi Arabia to beg them to pump more oil so as to increase global supply, a move that the White House is clearly considering. To plead with the Saudis right now would be to plead with a nation that's just executed 81 innocent people, mostly professors, for unpatriotic acts, and annually executes LGBTQ people in public. And let's not forget the House of Saud's role in standing with Russia and the wages of the just-as-deadly war in Yemen. There are some better options, though. Stand strong against the bloody House of Saud, for one, and Big Oil and their pals. Stand strong against hostage-taking by the Republicans and side with beleaguered Americans and their progressive allies in Congress. Progressives, including Bernie and Warren and Pramila Jayapal et al., are calling on the administration to expand Jan Schakowsky's COVID-19 Price Gouging Prevention Act to include gas and energy profiteers and send the proceeds from attacks on gougers to families in need. Another good option would be to win the midterms by standing with the planet, impose a war tax on carbon profiteers, and spend the proceeds on transitioning to renewables. The shift to clean energy doesn't have to go slowly, slowly. Electric car sales rose 43% in 2020 and over 108% last year. Stocks in renewables are outperforming oil and gas right now. So, tipping points tip... This could be one of them. If anything good could come from this grim, ghastly invasion, this could be it. We've certainly hit the bottom of the gas and oil barrel. For more information on this week's guests, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's a very special place where you'll find a suggested reading list and additional related episodes to explore. Join us. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Monica Mohapatra, Charlotte Carpenter, Nat Needham, Natasha Gaspar, Jeannie Hopper, Joanna Pinto, and Dominic Marcella. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura.